So go ahead and grab a Bible. If you've got one with you, you'll find a church Bible. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We have a free gift for a Bible for you afterwards, and I'm going to read the story, and you'll hear it. So where we are in uh, the Gospel of Mark, in this little brief series in the Gospel of Mark, Mark is really a story, an eyewitness story. So Mark and then is recording the eyewitness of Peter, one of the early followers of Jesus. And so we read this. What we're reading is the eyewitness account of, of Peter, the Apostle Peter, as he describes what it was like to be following this Jesus and to gradually come more and more into the understanding of who Jesus really is. And so the question we have this morning is, is Jesus really God? And you've got to imagine what it must have been like for Peter in those early days to be following Jesus and beginning to figure out, well, who, who is this guy? Who, who is he? And in, in the story I'm about to read out, there's a, there's a moment at the end of the story where it says they had not understood about the loaves. And, and what that is referring back to is something that happened right previous to this story, which is the feeding of the 5,000. And the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus fed 5,000 people with just a small picnic. An amazing thing. An amazing thing. But yet they didn't get that. They didn't understand what that meant about Jesus' divinity, that he's really God. They didn't get it. But then this happens that we're about to read out. And they begin to grasp. They begin to grasp who Jesus really is. So Mark's gospel as a whole is actually about an account of showing that Jesus is the Son of God. It begins by saying this is the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. And then right at the pinnacle of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14, there's the cross. Jesus is crucified. And then the centurion, a Roman centurion, looks up at the cross of Jesus and says, surely this is the Son of God. So it's a journey all the way through. The feeding of 5,000, they didn't understand what that meant. And now we come to this story. And it's a significant shift, a significant opening in their understanding to answer the question, is Jesus really God? So let's hear it together. Mark chapter 6 and beginning at verse 45. Immediately he, that is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, or they were rowing strenuously. Uh, making headway painfully, rowing strenuously. They're in the boat, they're rowing, rowing uh, strenuously, for the wind was against them. And the other, one of the, in the other accounts, it makes it clear, the waves, they're in danger. The waves are actually breaking into the boat. The wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. And one of the other accounts says, uh, they were, in one of the other gospels says, they worshipped him as God. They were utterly astounded. For they did not understand, or they had not understood, about the loaves, for their hearts were still hardened. This is God's word. You can go ahead and sit down. Amen. Amen. This is God's word. So the question we're asking this morning is, is Jesus really God? 
And we're in this story because Peter, one of the early followers of Jesus, is beginning to understand that he really is something bigger than they could possibly comprehend or imagine. Our question is, Jesus really God? Now, to answer that question, there are, there are different ways you can answer it. And so, obviously, in preparation for this sermon, I've been doing some new research, looking at the kind of things that people say to answer that question. I looked at one blog, and it had 15 different answers to that question. Is Jesus really God? There are factual answers, evidential answers, answers from the Bible. They were all good answers. And there are lots of good answers you can give to it. For instance, one of the ways you can know that Jesus is really God is by the resurrection. So Jesus rose again from the dead. There's good evidence for that. 500 people saw him at the same time. And therefore, you can know that Jesus is really God. That kind of answer. Or another common answer comes from uh, one of the great heroes in the Christian faith in recent, you know, the last sort of hundred years or so, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis made this uh, argument. He said, Jesus claimed to be God. And Jesus was also clearly a good man and a great teacher, but he claimed to be God. And therefore, because he also claimed to be God, it's not possible, it's not legitimate, it's not an option open to you to say that he was merely a good man or merely a moral teacher, merely a great teacher. Why? Because he claimed to be God. And therefore, you have a choice to make. Your choice is, is he Lord, as he claimed? Is he a liar? Is he lying about his identity? Or is he a lunatic? Is he crazy? Is he mad, bad, or indeed God, as he, as he said he was? So there are these evidential, there are these arguments that you can make. But here's the thing. I mean, these people had been following Jesus and seen him do the most amazing things. They'd just seen him feed 5,000 people from a small picnic, and yet they didn't understand. They didn't get it. They didn't see that he was really God. There was a... um, we, We sometimes need something different to help us to see and understand to really get that he was really God. There was an employer who decided that he wanted 100% participation in a charitable program to help the homeless in his city. It was winter. The homeless were struggling. There was a well-thought-of charitable organization. The company wanted to support it. And in addition, he wanted 100% participation from all his employees to support that program. They didn't have to give much. It could just be a penny, uh, 25 cents, a dollar, just something so that everyone would participate. They were doing this all together. And so the company went out and explained this to all the employees at some length over a month or so, sitting down, giving them various explanations, helping them understand what the program was, that they didn't have to give much, just 25 cents, just a penny, maybe a dollar, but just something so that everyone would know that the whole company was behind it. He wanted 100%. Participation, But there was one employee who kept on saying, I don't understand it. You're, you're, you're not explaining it to me in a way that I can get. And, he, he, and so that was going on. So the employer decided that he would sit down and talk to this employee who didn't understand what was being explained to him. He sat down with him in his office and said, I hear you don't understand what we're saying. You, you, it doesn't make sense to you. Our explanation doesn't connect with you. He said, and the employer said, you're absolutely right. I, I, I don't understand it. I, 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 it doesn't make sense to me. I'm not going to participate. Well, said the employer, then it seems to me that we have a problem, don't we? Because I want 100% participation. 
far as I can see, we have two options. Option number one, um, you decide that uh, it, it does make sense to you, it has been explained to you, and uh, you will participate, and therefore I have 100% participation. That's option number one. Option number two, you decide that it hasn't been explained to you, right? You don't get it. You don't participate. I relieve you of your responsibilities, and then I have 100% participation. And uh, the employee said, oh, I understand it now. It's been explained, and I I'm going to participate. And the employer said, what changed your mind? And the employee said, no one ever explained it to me the way you did. Sometimes people can give you all the evidence, all the facts, all the data, and yet it doesn't connect. It doesn't seem as if it's, it's, it's real somehow. And this story, I believe, is designed to help us with that. For they had the feeding of the 5,000. They had all the evidence, all the data they could possibly need. And yet it hadn't connected. And yet they didn't get it. And so the message here is saying you get it when Jesus gets into your boat. And we'll explain what that means as, at the end of the message as we go through it. There are three movements to it. First is real life. Then what can seem to be fake answers. They're not actually fake answers, but it can seem like they're only fake religious answers. Fake answers. And then thirdly, a real encounter when Jesus gets into your boat. So first... Real life. And this is really the first part of the story, verses 45 to 48. And uh, this is what a lot of life can feel like. So in the story, Jesus has gone up to a mountain to pray. He, he's somewhere else. You know, God is up there on a the cloud. And here we are, we're in the middle of the lake. And we're making headway painfully. We're rowing strenuously. It's hard work. What's, what's more, there's a wind against you. The wind is not at your back. It's in your face. It's pushing you back all the time. And, and you're rowing as hard as you can, but you're not getting anywhere. They're in the middle of the lake, the text is saying. It, it's, and it's, and it's, they're not getting anywhere. It, it's, it's rowing hard, not moving forward. Rowing hard, not, that's what life can feel like. Maybe that's what life feels like for you. Here it was the fourth watch of the night. That is, the, the, in ancient times, the, the night was divided up into four watches, and the fourth watch was the final one, the last one. So it's somewhere between three in the morning and six in the morning. In other words, they've been rowing all night, and they're still in the middle of the sea. They're not getting anywhere. That's what it can feel like, isn't it? It can feel like it's one step forward, two steps back. Rowing with all your might, trying everything, trying to get ahead in your career, trying to fix your family, trying to sort out your emotional life. You're doing everything you can. It's one step forward, two steps back. Rowing strenuously in the middle of the night, in the middle of the lake. And it's important we acknowledge that, that it can feel like that. One of the, a great preacher called um, Joseph Parker, who was pastor of a, of, a, of a church called City Temple in London for 33 years, a long time ago. Joseph Parker would say to those he was trained to preach, preach to the broken heart and you will never lack a congregation for there is a broken heart in every pew. This is real life. This is what it feels like. You know, maybe you're a student and people think you're having the time of your life, but actually it's hard work. 
you've got pressure of exams, you've got to perform, you've got to get good grades so you can get a good job, and it's, you don't feel like you're going anywhere. That could be your experience. Maybe you're, you're a professional business person, and everyone looks at you and says, what a great life, you know, what a nice car you've got, what a nice company you work for, but you know you work all the time, you never get a break, and it feels like you're going nowhere. I remember one time I was um, on a plane somewhere, and I was reading one of those in-flight magazines to describe you know, it was telling me all sorts of things. They're trying to get me to buy and all that. And they have these articles, these stories in there. And this story in this magazine was describing how people are working so hard these days that, that sometimes people work, it said, over 60 hours a, a week. I remember putting that magazine down and saying to myself, I cannot remember the time I worked under 60 hours a week. And maybe that's you. You got two jobs and not three. And now you're telling me, you know, uh, about how Jesus is God. What difference is that going to make to my life? I'm in the middle of the lake and I'm rowing my brains out and getting nowhere. That's the truth. That's what life feels like. And perhaps most difficult of all, you're, you're a mother with a, with a young child. And yeah, you've been up in the fourth watch of your nights, you know, you, you, many times this week. You know, over and over again. And someone comes up to you after church and says, your baby looks so cute. And you think, you should have seen it at five in the morning. (laughs) One of the preachers I like to listen to is a man called Don Carson. He's been here uh, several times at the church, and I've heard him preach many times over the years. Don Don Carson tells the story of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher from yesteryear. Martin Lloyd-Jones could bristle. You know, he could be direct. He could could really, you know, be sort of a little prophetic sometimes. He was a gracious, God, extraordinary man. But he had that, you know, he could could really go for it. And he was preaching to medical students. And he was saying to medical students, because the doctor Lloyd-Jones himself had been a medical student, so he was saying to medical students, you think you're too busy to have a daily devotional quiet time. I can tell you from my own experience, you're not too busy. You can do it. I don't, I don't mind, he was saying, whether you've been up all night, you can still have a daily devotional, and you need to. And he, he was preaching like this, and he was giving them no excuse. You have to have a daily devotional. And Lloyd-Jones was going on like this, and then he stopped. And he said, I make one exception to this rule, nursing mothers with small children. real life and you come to church it's like Jesus is God well so what real life then we get you know here in this passage what seems like sometimes to be fake answers this is kind of the middle section of the passage and uh, it's verses 48 and 49 a couple of things are going on it's fascinating when you read this you've got to read it as if it's from the point of view of an eyewitness account for it is R.T. France one of the commentators says you've got to read it from the point of view of an eyewitness account so it seemed to them as they're sitting there that Jesus now comes walking on the lake so familiar walking on the sea we've heard this before he's walking on the sea It seemed to them that he meant to keep on going. He meant to pass by. It's it's almost as if he doesn't care. He's just passing by. It's as if he's found a quicker way to get from point A to point B, from one side of the lake to the other, and he's just going to pass by while we're rowing strenuously. He's just meant to pass. That's what it seemed to them like. What is more, it seemed to them 
that it was a ghost. So what's going on is the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't a cute sort of nice little picnic. What was going on almost certainly was Jesus had become so popular, so influential, that now thousands of people gathered around him trying, John's gospel tells us this, trying to force him militarily to become king and, and, and take over the country. And so it's actually a dangerous situation, which is why Mark says immediately he dismissed the crowd and then said straight away to his disciples, you go to the other side of the lake, I'll get up to the mountain, I'll take care of these people. And that's why we're told he, he put them in 50s and 100s, almost like sort of military organization. I'm going to organize you, and then obviously the feeding of the 5,000, and then I'll take care of it, you start rowing. And what, what happens is, now they, see, they think it's a ghost. In other words, they think it went all wrong. They think he's dead. And fascinatingly, you know, how you know that Jesus is really God, evidence of the resurrection, one of the ways, of course, you can know that Jesus is really God. Fascinatingly, this language here, about meant to pass by and thinking he's a ghost is exactly the kind of language that people used when they're trying to grasp who Jesus is after they saw him from the resurrection, after the resurrection of the dead. On the road to Emmaus, one of the times when Jesus was walking along with his disciples, they didn't recognize him. And it seemed to them he meant to keep on going. Similar sort of language. And then later when they see him, they think he's a ghost. In other words, you can have all this list of arguments, all this list of evidence. You can have the feeding of the 5,000, but, but it can still feel like it's fake, like it's distant, like it hasn't connected, like you don't get it, like it hasn't been explained to you, right? Like it's still out there rather than in here, like it's just means to pass by and I'm still rowing away and okay so maybe it's something supernatural but it's scary rather than good because I'm just rowing in this, in this boat and it hasn't made any difference to me. And, you know, and the church, the church, when people are in real hard situations, the church can sometimes not be great at giving good answers. I mean, we've almost got a PhD in fake answers, you know what I mean, as church, churches go. It's like uh, someone comes to someone with a problem and they tell them to read a Bible verse every day, you know, so take one Bible verse each day and come back and see me in a week and you'll feel better, you know. And it just doesn't connect. Or, or the bumper sticker Christianity. The way we have slogans out there that are used completely out of context. Like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Put on the, the gym wars if it's about you know, getting bigger muscles. I can do all things through Christ. I can do, I can do all things through a Bible verse taken out of context. You know. It just seems fake. How does it connect? How do I know that Jesus is really God in any functional, practical, real way? Well, then we come finally to the real encounter, the real encounter. And this, of course, is the end of the passage, really from the end of verse 49 to the end of the, end of the story in verse 52. And they cry out, God, you know, what's going on? God, help us. And then two things, two amazing things take place. The first is that Jesus speaks. Take courage, he says. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, when Jesus says, it is I, the phrase behind that in the Greek, ego eimi, is I 
am. And almost certainly in this context, with Jesus walking on the sea, and there over there, almost certainly he's saying, I am. I am. God, when he spoke to Moses in the Old Testament, told Moses to encourage God's people by saying to them, tell them, I am is sending you. And that, that, that I am then is behind the word, the Old Testament word for God, Yahweh, I am. And Jesus, walking on the lake, looks out at his disciples and says, take courage, I am. I think the person who got the, 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 the emotive quality of this and the profundity of it best was C.S. Lewis in one of his children's stories. Uh, it's called The Horse and His Boy. And at one point in The Horse and His Boy, Shasta, one of the heroes of this story, is lost in a mountain. And the fog has come down and he cannot see where he's going. And he begins to complain about his life, his real life. It's been hard. I've got no idea what's going on. And he's speaking like this. And suddenly, he cannot see who it is, but there's a presence next to him. A huge, it seems, massive, scary, monster-like, ghost-like presence next to him. And, 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 and this presence begins to ask him about what's happened in his life. And Shasta's complaining. You, you have no idea how hard it has been. You have no idea what's gone wrong. I, I cannot make any sense of how to put together all these different parts of my life. I've done this, and now... now now where am I going? Now what's next? It doesn't make any sense. And this presence is listening. And then begins to tell Shasta, actually, this presence that he cannot see that's in the fog, this monstrous ghostly presence, was actually somehow involved in all that, taking charge of all that. For here in the story, Jesus, the unknown to the disciples, is actually watching them from the mountain. He knows exactly what they're going through. And this presence next to Shasta is saying, I was there when this happened. I was there when that happened. I've taken your life. I know you. I've known you since before the creation of the world. You're here for a purpose. You're right here for a purpose. I've known you. I'm in charge of your life. I love you. I want you. And he he, he talks like this. He's known everything that Shasta's ever done. He's been a part of everything that's ever happened to Shasta. And then Shasta says at one moment, well, who are you? And the voice just says, I am. But here's the thing. It is only when Jesus gets in the boat that the wind stops. You know, you can hear me explain the evidence of the resurrection, how you need to make a decision between, you know, Jesus as mad, bad, or God. And you, you, can't, you can't think he's mad, and you can't think he's bad. Therefore, you've got to think he's God. You, you can have me describe the, the way the Bible connects, connects together, that Jesus is the great I am. We can do all that, but at the end of the day, for you to get it, for, you, for the penny to drop in your mind, you've got to, he's got to get into your boat. You've, you've, got to, you've, you've got to say, Lord, will you take charge of my life? Will you take the steering wheel of my life? Now, 
It doesn't mean that you understand everything. I mean, Peter, in just a couple of chapters, will make the most extraordinary mistakes about the identity of Jesus. It doesn't mean that he understood everything about Jesus being God. I mean, who could? I mean, he spent the rest of his life trying to figure that out, as as we all will, that Jesus is God. This is a mind-blowing idea, but he's begun to follow Jesus, for he realizes that he is the I am. And the wind stops when he gets in his boat. And it may be that you're a Christian. And you're going through the hardest possible time. The real, the real life seems really real right now. And the answers, you know the answers. You know the Bible verses. But it's not making a difference. Well, let me say this to you. Will you ask Jesus? I don't mean in some like you know, saying a prayer way. I mean actually, actually ask Jesus now to come in. And Lord, will you, will you help me? But it could be that you're not yet a follower of Jesus. And this is a call to you, just to take the next step. You don't have to figure it all out. You just have to let him into your boat and say, Lord, I, I want to follow you. Lord, I, I, I want to be, I, I be your follower. And you begin this journey through Mark's gospel to figure out more who Jesus is as you follow him. For Jesus really is the, the I am, the great, the great God of all. I'm going to close um, with a, a final uh, story, illustration. Uh, we sung early in the service the great hymn, Amazing Grace. And Amazing Grace was written by a man called John Newton. John Newton grew up in a Christian country, so he'd heard since he was a baby that Jesus is God. And yet, John Newton was a slave trader. He was a captain of a slave ship. So he had all this information, all these facts, all this data, but the penny had not dropped. It hadn't been explained to him in a way that he got. Until one day, he was out in the middle of the sea, and there was a storm. And he, as it were, asked Jesus into his boat. Now, Newton didn't understand everything straight away. He still made errors and mistakes as he grew as a Christian, as he began to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus. But, 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 it was a game changer. William Wilberforce, the the transatlantic slave trade, William Wilberforce, many people helped end the transatlantic slave trade. But of the, of the most prominent and most significant and most influential of them all was a man called William Wilberforce who, who stopped that evil. William Wilberforce was mentored by, discipled by, encouraged by, equipped by John Newton. All because in a boat on a lake... He asked Jesus into his boat. Will you do that? Let's spend some time in quiet and prayer now. We live such busy lives with smartphones and Twitter and Facebook and everything that all this information age in which we live, it's, and you've had a lot of content, it's so easy just to not really think or feel or understand or connect or or grasp what's been said. So now I want to just give us all some quiet for us to say to Jesus, yeah, I want to follow you. 
Uh, would you come and take charge of my life? Would you help me figure out what the next steps are? Would you come, as it were, into the, into the boat of my life? Let's just have some quiet. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.